Hello and welcome to another episode of Into the Tech of It. I am your host, Jaime Cabrera, and today we will have a conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Schneider. Dr. Schneider is a Hoover Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Her research focuses on the intersection of technology, national security, and political psychology with a special interest in cybersecurity, unmanned technologies, and Northeast Asia. She is an active member of the defense policy community with previous positions at the Center for a New American Security and the RAND Corporation. Before beginning her academic career, she spent six years as an Air Force officer in South Korea and Japan and is currently a reservist assigned to U.S. Cyber Command. She has a BA from Columbia University, an MA from Arizona State University, and a PhD from George Washington University. Today we will discuss the elements of a cyber strategy, how cyber attacks can restrain escalation, and the myth of cyber operations as a deterrence. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Snyder, for being here with me. Uh, it's an honor to have you here. I enjoy always talking to you, and it's great for for the audience to also listen from an expert in 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 cyber weapons and cyber uh, conflict. Uh, how are you today? I'm good. It's exciting to be here and talk to you. Well, uh, we are the ones lucky to listen to you today, and uh, well, we just want to just get get straight to the point. And uh, today we're going to be talking about. Um, cyber strategy and how we can get to a like, coherent cyber strategy or like a, a good cyber strategy. And why don't you just like tell us or to the audience, tell the, what is, what is a cyber strategy? Like what, what, what comprises cyber strategy? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, sometimes it's a little bit confusing. So I'm going to talk about cyber strategy um, in relation to governments, um, but keep in mind that businesses also um, often have cyber strategies. Mm -hmm. So the point of any strategy is to, um, one, tell your adversaries what you're doing so that you can kind of tell them to back off, signal and warn them but also to tell the various agencies that work in a government what its priorities need to be. Okay. Um, it also provides guidance because you can imagine the president doesn't have time to call every agency and say, hey, hey, this is what I want you to do. This is what I don't want you to do. Yeah. Here's where I want you to devote most of your resources. We don't have time to do that, right? So strategies can provide really useful guidances for the agencies that fall underneath. In the case of the United States, the agencies mm -hmm. that fall underneath the executive branch to kind of show them, okay, this is how you work together. These are our general principles that we're working towards. Um, and the best strategies have some sort of prioritization. So here are the means that you're going to use. Here are the things they want you to focus on. Um, and the really best strategies, and this almost never happens, um, provide a little bit of a roadmap for us understanding how you determine whether your strategy is effective in the first place. Okay. That's actually the hardest part. Now, cyber strategy is a little bit of a niche strategy. So in general, I'll talk about the United States. The United States mm -hmm. has some really big strategies. So if we're talking about security, there's generally two really big strategies. That's the national security strategy, and that's written by the executive branch. So think about that okay. as the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. And this is the national security strategy says, here are all the big things and priorities that I care about as a nation. And mm -hmm. here is how we're going to achieve those. 
So cyber is usually a portion or uh-huh. part of the national security strategy. Underneath that is the national defense strategy. And that's how the Department of Defense says they're going to implement their part of the national security strategy. Okay. And the national defense strategy usually has a bit of cyber in it, too. Mm. There are also cyber strategies. So the um, last in the last four years, the executive branch has written um, a national cyber strategy. Mm-hmm. The Department of Homeland Security has a cyber strategy. Um, and kind of what I specialize in is the Department of Defense's okay. cyber strategy. And then underneath that, <laughs> in the United States, uh-huh. Cyber Command has um, not officially a strategy because um, according to the rules of doctrine, it is not a strategy, mm. okay. um, but a strategic vision. And this is how Cyber Command envisions its command implementing cyber operations across a variety of lines of effort. So all of these things in an ideal world build upon each other and work in context with each other. Now, mm-hmm. strategy is messy and they and, don't always work like that. <laughs> and all these strategies, like they're, even though they're from separate entities of government, like they all have to be coherent within the, the, the federal, the executive branch uh, strategy, right? Ideally. So, um, for example, under the Trump administration, the national security strategy came out first. So think of this like a triangle, right? So Mm -hmm. national security strategy comes on top. And then the national defense strategy was very tightly nested underneath it. So that's where you saw the concept, for example, of great power competition. Okay. debuts in the national security strategy, and then it becomes a pivoting thing for the national defense strategy. Now, that is not how the cyber strategies ended up coming out under the Trump administration. They went the opposite way. First, Cyber Command came out with its strategic vision, which introduced the thing we call persistent engagement. Uh Then the Department of Defense came out with a national cyber strategy or a defense cyberspace strategy, Mm -hmm. which didn't mention persistent engagement, but introduced this thing called Defend Forward. Mm -hmm. And then the executive branch came out with a cyber strategy, which was relatively completely disconnected from the two previous kind of strategic documents. So that was kind of like a bottom-up approach, right? It was kind of a bottom-up approach instead of like a top-down as if like it would be more coherent, right? Yes. And um, that was actually one of the big um, findings that the Cyberspace Solarium uh, Commission had was that, hey, strategy should not come out this way, Um, Mm -hmm. which was part of why they advocated for um, an appointed cyber position on the National Security Council as a means to potentially try and centralize and diffuse down instead of percolating up. Okay, and uh, and usually when we talk about when we talk about cyber attacks, and especially when when you're still just getting into the the whole aspect of like cyber policy and just like getting into maybe you're not an expert in, in national security, but you're also not an expert in, in in the technology sector, right? We usually just think about the biggest examples of cyber attacks, and usually, I mean, lately obviously we have new examples with uh, uh, with the recent attacks that we've seen, but before that we've had you know attacks on the private sector with the North Korea attack on, on Sony, for example, and uh, and. Those are part of the strategy too. Like defending from those attacks on private companies are also part of the strategy, right? 
Yes. And actually, it's been a really complicated thing for the United States to think through. Um, If you look at the way the strategies work in other domains, let's say like nuclear, we're thinking about um, conventional use of, of weapons. Yes. It's not usually those types of problems are not usually targeting American companies. They're mm-hmm. targeting, you know, the American military or mm-hmm. American allies. Cyber's odd in that way because the primary kind of target is the private sector. Mm-hmm. And so the U.S. has had to do a lot of thinking about, well, whose role is it in the federal government to protect critical infrastructure. And then, um, and I think what they've um, kind of experimented to figure out is that um, most of the defense of critical infrastructure happens by the private industries. Mm -hmm. And what the U.S. government tries to do is it tries to support those private industries by enabling information sharing through um, the Department of Homeland Security's um, CISA. Mm -hmm. I I always forget what CISA stands for, cyber and critical infrastructure security agency so they help um disseminate information threat information between the public the federal government and the private sector and Uh then between sectors and that's i think that is an emerging role we see them being more public facing than they were and it's a pretty new organization and then um what the department of defense has been working on is not defending critical infrastructure, Mm -hmm. but instead reaching out beyond um, the United States' kind of internet borders Mm -hmm. and instead looking at what are the key adversaries, what are they doing? Um, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran are the things that the United States can do to make their offensive operations less capable. Mm -hmm. Now, things like ransomware that are coming from criminal organizations is a bit of a challenge for the United States because Mm -hmm. it's... um, slightly out of the purview, potentially, of the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. um, which is the only part of the U.S. Uh, government that has the authorities to conduct offensive cyber operations. Um, but we do know, you know, the Department of Justice and the FBI has ability um, under their authorities to go after criminals. Mm-hmm. They're just, it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit kind of confusing whether they could, you know, for example attack the um, the cyber resources that these criminal groups are using to launch these ransomware campaigns. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that's something the Biden administration is really working through right now. Mm-hmm. And then when we think about, uh, you know, we, we say the word cyber attacks, right? And uh, and as you said, it's, it's tricky in the cyber domain because if it was an attack with any other kind of like weapon, we would have we would be seeing this differently, right? Like if this was, even if it was a private company, but it was a, you know, a, a bomb exploding in, in the servers that of Sony, right? This would be a completely different scenario. But with cyber, what's what's the deciding factor to know? Is it the, the damage, the implications or the reach? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something I've done a, a decent amount of research on. I have work that I've done with um, Sarah Kraps at Cornell University, where we introduced different scenarios to survey takers. And some of the scenarios included cyber attacks, and some included conventional attacks, and some even nuclear attacks. And we looked at, okay, well, if if we tell them that the cyber attack creates the same effects as these other types of attacks, yeah. are the American public going to be just as likely to support retaliation? And the answer is no. Okay. We use cyber qualitatively differently. Um, and when I've run war games, this is something that we find as well, is that there seems to be um, 
almost like a reverse fire break where um, cyber operations are considered to be different than other um, types of attacks. Now, mm-hmm. some of this is for good reason. Most of the things that you hear in the press as cyber attacks really are not attacks at all. They're actually spying. Okay. Um, they're stealing your data, but they're not manipulating the data. They're not destroying the data. And most importantly, they're not creating physical damage or mm-hmm. death. And that's a really big difference from dropping a bomb where you immediately, your goal is to create a physical effect. Mm-hmm. More often than not, cyber operations are not trying to create physical effects. Instead, they're trying to kind of manipulate. Um, in the case of ransomware, you know, they're, they're hoping to give you your data back so that you will pay them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just a very different kind of phenomenon. I mean, if you think about like a bank, right? Mm-hmm. Banks are attacked, um, actually attacked. You know, people try and steal um, ones and zeros mm-hmm. or money from a bank all the time. And if you compare that to kind of the good old westerns and and coming in with a gun and uh, you know sticking up and holding up a bank, yeah. I think we as human beings understand there's a very different emotional response to these two things. And even though the effect might be the same, they're stealing money. Mm-hmm. We as human beings have a very different kind of emotional response to these cyber attacks than we do these physical and kinetic attacks. And also, I mean, the response, and as you said, it's the human response is different. And and we also need to remember policymakers are, you know, first and most like human and they also respond to like their constituents who are also human right so like if if as you said like if they don't perceive it as such a big deal they might not even you know be okay with retaliating in a strong response by for a cyber attack as opposed to even a small damage kinetic attack right yeah i mean can you imagine if the colonial pipeline ransomware attack was an act of sabotage where criminals were putting IEDs or bombs on the pipeline and blowing Mm -hmm. up the pipeline, you can imagine that that creates a whole different set of responses than a cyber attack, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, part of the thing that um, makes the response to cyber attacks less emotional is that generally you can fix it, right? Um, It's not, it's usually not a physical thing that you have to kind of rebuild the pipeline. You're rebuilding your data pipeline, Mm -hmm. basically. Um, And I think the goal is for companies to be more resilient so that it's easy for them to fix their data pipelines very quickly. So you get these kind of catastrophic data losses where, you know, they're not backing up or um, they haven't thought about having hybrid cloud structures or, I mean, you know, kind of, um, they haven't invested in resiliency. This is when you see kind of larger um, or more difficulty responding to um, mm-hmm. losses of data or cyber attacks. So then, uh, and, and you've mentioned this in other uh, conferences and, and, and talks that you've given, but that this, so these cyber attacks or this form of like, I don't know if it's it, it can be called warfare. Maybe like that's kind of like a definition that it needs to be worked on. But these cyber attacks are restraining escalation, right? Is because it, it essentially limits by 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 being the target of a cyber attack, it limits the response that you're going to get at least so far, right? Yeah. So I've been working on cyber escalation for six years, maybe more. And when I first started working on this, um, I looked at all the characteristics of cyberspace, you know, the Mm -hmm. uncertainty and the difficulty at the time with attribution, the amount of actors that are in the space, the the speed of launching, um, kind of seemingly launching a cyber attack. And I Mm -hmm. thought... This is really dangerous for escalation as all the characteristics uh-huh. that we would say in international relations are dangerous yeah. and yet 
as scholars started working on empirically, like, okay, do are we seeing any escalation? They just found no. And this uh-huh. is this weird puzzle. Like, why aren't we seeing escalation? Um, and so I think over the last three to four years, increasingly within the academic space, and I think this is actually becoming more of how practitioners view this world as well, where it's saying, mm-hmm. hey, the cyber Armageddon thing, the cyber Pearl Harbor thing, that doesn't seem to be happening, right? Okay. There's definitely an increase in the amount of cyber activity, but it seems to be kind of all within cyberspace and not escalating to violent conflict. Mm-hmm. And so now there are scholars that are saying, okay, well, it didn't create escalation, but maybe it actually decreases the incentives for escalation to violent conflict because it opens what we call the bargaining space. So the bargaining Mm -hmm. space is kind of, if you think of the way states interact as a line, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of foreign policy activities that states can choose within this line um, in order to bargain with other states to get whatever the foreign policy objective is. So prior to conflict, there's only maybe the bargaining space is smaller, right? We can use sanctions, we can use diplomacy, mm-hmm. maybe there's a few other things, but there's not a lot, especially when you're like the United States and you've built a pretty awesome conventional arsenal, right? Mm-hmm. But you're not willing to use it on a lot of foreign policy objectives for good reason. <laughs> you don't need to bomb, you know, you don't need to bomb stuff to get mm-hmm. all of your foreign policy objectives fulfilled. So scholars are arguing that maybe what cyberspace does is it gives it opens up this bargaining space so okay. that states are able to coerce each other, uh, bargain with each other without resorting to bombing or sending in special operations mm-hmm. or you know having a naval blockade. Um, and I think they're they're still pursuing to see whether this is really true. And I found some evidence that this is true and some evidence that maybe it's weaker than scholars suggested. So I think this is uh-huh. still something that we're looking at. Can can this actually increase the bargaining space to decrease incentives for escalation to violent conflict. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because you mentioned you mentioned IR theory and uh, and something that I, I personally at least did not see it just kind of like being related, right? Like we, I thought about, you know, cyber policy, completely different. And then IR theory, it's more of a, a different view. But then you're saying that it's actually, it's part of it too, right? Like this great power competition, like, and, 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 and just the cyber conflict, plays within the same great power competition, right? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of uh, cyber deterrence doesn't work in cyber. We need new paradigms. Uh, Mm -hmm. We can't use our old theories in cyber. I'm a little more old school. I mean, theories aren't necessarily, some theories are directly um, about certain means, Mm -hmm. right? Um, A lot of the international relations theory post-Cold War was about nuclear weapons, right? And it was about theories of how states interact with each other when there are nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. But some of these theories, I mean, deterrence really is, this this theory of deterrence has been around far before nuclear weapons, right? This is just the idea that states can convince other states not to do a behavior that they would otherwise want to Mm do um, by messaging and signaling. Mm -hmm. Now, cyber operations and cyber create has... Kind of unique characteristics that makes deterrence um, more or less likely to work in different circumstances. But it doesn't mean deterrence doesn't exist. Okay. And so I think um, the best work I see is where people are, are evaluating, okay, we have theories of international relations. And some of these theories we argue 
are applicable across domains, across mm-hmm. weapon systems, across contexts. I mean, this mm-hmm. is kind of as a political scientist. This is what you want. You want like the theory that the t- answers everything, yeah. no matter when, no matter how, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of times what cyber scholars are doing are saying, well, let me show you where there are limitations here, right? Okay. Let me show you where this is not generalizable to cyber operations, or let me tell you kind of how this theory can help predict when and why cyber operations operate in the way that they do. And so I don't see them as kind of competitions to competition to each other. Mm-hmm. In some ways I see, um, see them as helping validate each yeah. other. And I often, um, use cyber as an example to, to try and understand and validate whether theories apply across domains. Okay. And that's, I mean, it's interesting because as you said, like it's, it's, it would be easier for us to be able to generalize something to an extent where like, oh, well, we clearly know what they're trying to do because it falls in line with our, our like knowledge of IR theory. But uh, as you said, like with this new scholar, just bringing the ways of this, uh, there's a difference between IR theory and the way the cyber works and operates. Uh, I think uh, that's a challenge for a lot of people who are just like trying or thinking about getting into this uh, into this area of study um, because there's there's a lot of possibility, right? Like, I mean, they could be the, the next person who, who writes a comprehensive cyber IR theory, right? Yes. Yeah, so, oh dear God, please don't anybody else write any more cyber deterrence. <laughs> we don't need any more cyber deterrence books, please. Like move. We'll, let's let's pick another part of of IR theory. To you know, there's IR theory is actually quite expansive. Mm-hmm. You know, there's really great work, for example, on behavioral um, implications of IR. Kind of how individual micro foundations about how individuals behave and react might mm-hmm. aggregate to help us explain and understand how states interact. But that's mm-hmm. something I feel like um, we need more of in, in cyberspace. Um, or another, you know, work that has not really been done is integrating political economy um, mm-hmm. into explaining and understanding cyberspace interactions. So there's still a lot of room for IR theory and for those who are interested in applying IR theory to cyberspace. Uh-huh. But really, please don't write another deterrence. <laughs> paper, op-ed, blog, and dear God, not a book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, there you have it for, for those who are thinking about that. Thank you for listening to the first part of our conversation with Dr. Schneider. In the next episode, we will talk about the uses of cyber weapons and also talk about private and public collaboration to reduce cyber vulnerability. Here's a small preview of the next episode. Since the U.S. has been writing cyber strategies in 2011, I think was the first one, they have always advocated for an open and free internet. And there's a giant question, right? Like if information's being weaponized against the United States, should the United States still be propagating this norm? And I think yes. I think it is absolutely still worth it. This podcast is sponsored by the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. This project is part of the Bromley Fellowship, which provides research training and mentorship opportunities to graduate students of the University of Texas, aiming to involve students in international affairs early in their career to prepare the next generation of leaders to help develop solutions to the most pressing public policy challenges. I am Jaime Cabrera, and thank you for getting into the tech of it.